difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Tasha Robinson. And... Scott Tobias. On the first half of this episode, we discussed Stand By Me, Rob Reiner's 1986 adaptation of Stephen King's The Body. We're going to stay in King territory for the second half of the episode to focus on It, the first half of director Andy Muschietti's attempt to bring King's 1986 magnum opus to the big screen. Muschietti's isn't the first such attempt. It was previously adapted as a TV miniseries in 1990. This feature film version has been long in the works, and it's not hard to see why. King's novel is over 1,100 pages and is set across two timelines, the main character's childhoods in the 1950s and their adult selves in the 1980s. Muschietti's It, revealed in the closing credits to be chapter one of the story, takes place in 1989. A sequel, set in the present, is already in the works. Like Stand By Me, It takes place during a summer in which its kid protagonists, who dub themselves the Losers Club, have to get to the bottom of a mystery with no help from adults, specifically the disappearance of some local kids. The missing include the younger brother, Bill, played by Midnight Special and Book of Henry star, Jaden Lieberher. The kids include the wisecracking Richie, played by Stranger Things' Finn Wolfhard, and Beverly, the soul girl, played by relative newcomer Sophia Lillis. Their adversary mostly presents itself in the form of Pennywise the Dancing Clown, a mirthless merrymaker played by Bill Skarsgård. We'll get into our reactions to It, as well as how It compares to Stand By Me, after the break. My grandfather thinks this town is cursed. He says that all the bad things that happen in this town are because of one thing, an evil thing that feeds off the people of dairy. But it can't be one thing. We all saw something different. Maybe. Or maybe it knows what scares us most, and that's what we see. I, I, I saw a leper. He, he was like a walking infection. But you didn't. Because it isn't real. None of this is. None of this makes any sense. They're all like bad dreams. I don't think so. I know the difference between a a bad dream and real life, okay? We're all afraid of something. Got that right. Why, Rich? What are you afraid of? Clowns. So, everyone, what did you think of it? I don't know. I I found myself becoming less and less persuaded by it Mm -hmm. as it went along. I think for maybe a couple of reasons. One is that, I mean, there's a lot of characters, and each one of them has a little fear, and each one of those fears has to be realized in a certain sequence. And And the second reason is that those sequences are done in a very particularly modern style mm-hmm. of horror filmmaking that, that irritates me a lot of the time it's very assaultive and aggressive and it really they're really hitting you hard with the visual effects and the sound effects it just the whole thing had this kind of sledgehammer impact that i think really took away from the human story at the core of the film and the book from what i can re- remember I, you know the book i haven't read since 
probably 22 years ago or something. But uh, uh, so my memory of it is vague. But it, I do remember being really absorbed by the world of the book and being being taken in by these characters and by a certain dread-filled ambiance that didn't really define this film at, at all. It felt like a, just a, a contraption of various horror set pieces all of which lost their distinction for me over over time because they're all done in the same kind of super aggressive modern style. There's also just, uh, there's too much monster. You know, <laughs> part of the thing that makes a horror film work is dread and mystery. Mm-hmm. And the film puts Pennywise the Clown on the screen in the first scene, and it's really eerie. But then he just keeps cropping up over and over and over and over and over. And that happens in the book, too. But, you know, the book is, in the manner of Stephen King, very discursive about sort of the, the inner personal experience of all of these people. And it's hugely long because there's so many characters, and you spend so much time within their lives and finding out what makes them distinctive. And the movie here does really really try to hang on to like tiny bits and pieces of what makes each one of these characters specific. Mm-hmm. They still blur a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's got to be enough concision to get through this story. But as a result, the forms that it takes are driven by their fears. They have very specific fears, so it appears to them in different ways. But there is a middle section of the movie that's just clown turns into something scary and lunges at them, mm-hmm. lunges at the screen, startles you, clown chases them around, says something eerie. But because all of them have to make it to a, at least a certain point in the movie, it doesn't actually harm any of them. And after a while, it stops seeming quite as scary. And there are reasons for that within the narrative, but they don't really come up in the movie. I like this movie just fine, but I was expecting like maybe we get kind of a revelatory Stephen King adaptation. We, we've it's been a while since we've had one of those, and certainly the material lends itself to that. And you're right, where I think it gets less convincing as it goes along, in, in part because I, mean, I think that first scene is actually, as you say, really eerie. I, I think most of the Pennywise appearances are. There might be too many of them, and 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 it is a little assaultive. But I think there's some inventiveness the way they're presented. I think part of the problem is there are a lot of characters and the kids are really good. I think it's mm-hmm. a strong definitely, cast, definitely. which helps a lot, yeah, yeah, yeah. but so a lot of them are really thinned out to like John Hughes, you know, yeah. cliche. It's like, it's the Jewish kid. It's the wisecracker, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, it's yet another movie that has a black character who gets to do the least of all, you know? And, yeah, he's and, really sidelined. Yeah. And I mean, in a lot of ways he is in the book too. That is inherently a problem, but in so many ways, he's the far outsider of this story. He's a homeschooled kid for reasons that are never explained. Mm-hmm. His parents are dead in a way that we like gloss over in a really painful monologue that nobody reacts to. Mm-hmm. There's some very weird editing in this movie that I think possibly excises scenes that we needed. There are a couple of very strange cuts, and some of them, I think, definitely come at his expense. There are points where it seems like we're going to get more of him, and then we suddenly cut to a later part of the story. He just he really gets sidelined yeah. in a way that's problematic for the visuals. And I think part of that in the book is in the 1950s, there would have been a much bigger division between the the white and the black characters. Here, it just seems like he he shows up as the token in oh, a way that, that doesn't that. have racial resonance. It's just an awkwardness it, in the, the narrative. Thing is it kind of does, but it doesn't actually follow through on that at all, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think there seems to be some inference that uh, whatever happened to his family was racially motivated, motivated, but the film just kind of hits on the brakes. The bullies kind of walk up to the line of being insulting him and saying, you know, get out of our town, you don't belong here, but they don't really lay out the reason. The they're very restrained bullies. 
in a sense, they're beating him up and calling him horrible things, but not they don't step over the line of, of actual racial insult. To a degree that, I mean, the, the point where the bullies get him, I think, is one of the big kind of missing pieces of the story, just in terms of it suddenly becomes, a, eh, okay, they do this to everybody, I guess. There's nothing really personal going on here. But it's such a personal story when you're singled out by a group of people and, and tortured. I mean, these are some serious bullies. Mm-hmm, yeah. And we'll get into that, I think, in connections a bit. I don't want to underplay the parts of this film that I did appreciate. Uh, we're coming in super negative, I think. In part, for me, there's just sort of a sense of disappointment because the little bits of this film that we were getting were so eerie. I like I really wanted to be spooked. Yeah. And there are there are a lot of images here that I think are really unsettling and, and work really well. It's just that there's so much of it and it's and it happens over and over. But the performances are great. I think Skarsgård is creepy as hell. Yeah. I actually kind of like that assaultive approach to horror. I would not want every horror film to be that way. But Machete's mama was also kind of assaultive in a in a way. And I found it mostly refreshing. Yeah. Like you get the monster in that fairly early and you get trained to relate to it in a very different way from from a lot of other monster movies. It's not quite as strong as the host in that regard, but it's just, it's a different approach. And I I think that the approach here is pretty conscious with it just constantly pushing itself forward and constantly aggressively attacking both the characters and you. For me, it it shouldn't have been a different approach. There should have been like less, there should have been less of the the montage of, of evil. Well, let me make a couple of points. One, in terms of scares, the biggest scare in the movie, I think was also for me was when Ben goes to the library and he's researching the town history and he goes page after page and in the background blurred out there's like there's this figure that mm. seems to be approaching him and uh it adds this incredible menace and it's it's kind of old-fashioned and mm-hmm. it's just uh, the after he does that of course he kind of goes off into the basement or whatever the archives and gets chased around and to me that's a little bit back into more conventional horror but having this spooky figure who is paying very intense attention to him you know out of focus in the background i mean i think that's good horror filmmaking and i kind of wish i saw more of that um yeah i think the innovative touches are really nice and and the images are really strong it's it's got a great eye i i think the sort of the less creative scares are still pretty effective. I mean, I never felt like there was a cheap jump scare in this. There's some definitely some scares that could have been a little more, ask a little bit more of the audience than what you get. I see what you're saying, though. That particular sort of bit of spookiness is suggestive. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's letting you put together the pieces. And an awful lot of this movie is not about letting you anticipate what's coming. It's just, it's constantly coming. It's constantly overwhelming you with imagery. I think we have a fairly similar read on Stephen King movie especially because I wrote this thing for Washington Post about what makes a great Stephen King movie and one of the things was that relationship between all the great Stephen King adaptations The Shining uh, Carrie Christine etc have this this connection between the interior lives of their characters and this and the horror that is mm-hmm. that, that it manifests itself and is related in a very intimate way with with what sure. is going on inside of them, and and to me too much of it is is the external things that people make a mistake in trying to represent in Stephen King movies when you when you focus on all the crazy crap that he puts in his books 
that's where you go wrong. Yeah, I was actually, I was on Pop Culture Happy Hour just after Dark Tower came out uh, talking about Stephen King adaptations. And I said pretty much the exact same thing. Like the, the, what you wrote in that piece and, and what I had already said on that, that podcast were pretty much simpatico. It's a rare, it's, a, it's like a solar eclipse, Tasha. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, when the two of us come together. Mm-hmm. But burrito lettuce, Scott. Yeah, we'll nope. always have burrito yeah, lettuce. Yeah, no, I think that, I think that people who adapt King have a tendency, he crafts some really memorable, terrifying images. Mm-hmm. And I think people get hung up on those images to the point where they kind of blitz past the meaning of those images. And in this case in particular, there are the, the thing that happens to Beverly in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm going to carry that with me for a while. It's, it's beautifully shot and really unnerving. And the follow-up to it is even more unner- unnerving. But you have a psychological justification for everything that's happening there. It's very, very meaningful in addition to being creepy. And too many of the scares don't do that. Yeah, that's an instance where I think the film wants to be that kind of Stephen King movie where it is driven by the interior lives of these characters and Beverly and Bill get the best of that impulse in this movie. And it's just spread a little too thin for maybe it should be a TV miniseries. They ever consider that? <laughs> uh, no, I just, I don't it, want to I distract think- too much, but I am. So talking about the, uh, the film to people, I, I, I found a lot of people really love that miniseries. Yeah. Do you, like, I, I don't it. have fond memories. No, I watched it. I thought it was very TV miniseries, <laughs> you know, <laughs> me too, but uh, they have um, really strong, positive memories. I think it. Tim Curry makes a pretty deep impression. Tim Curry is fun. People love to see Harry Anderson in a dramatic role, I guess. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I kept rooting for this film to find, to dig a little deeper, mm-hmm. to find a little, another gear. Cause it looks great. I think the scares are gear from, from fine to quite scary. I think there's some real creativity to what it's doing. I, I respect that it was able to turn, you know, half the book into to a relatively tight to an hour and 15 minute film but yeah it's just it's it's good it's good guys it should be great yeah maybe that's my frustration that is it, that it never it's it's okay <laughs> but but i but it, i did think there there was greatness you can see a great film there that doesn't quite make it and i think it, it really is there in the dynamic between all of them together i think mm-hmm. that's when the film is strongest and that's when they are strongest in terms of facing this threat yeah, I can't stress enough how good this cast is across the board. Um, I felt like when I look back, it's like, wait, all those people were in the same movie together as kids? We'd seen Jaden Lieberher before, but I really liked uh, Jeremy Ray Taylor, who plays Ben, the overweight kid. I thought Sophia Lillis, who played Beverly, was was really quite good. Film Wolfhard, we we know, and you know, mm-hmm. it's it's just strong. He's got across. all the good like mom jokes. Yeah, it, it's it's strong across the board. You know, I'll I'll tell you what though, it's it kind of suffers because of Stranger Things a little bit. Oh yeah, because yeah, in it was a serious like, way. I mean, and not just that that Stranger Things borrows a lot from Stephen King in general and it in particular, but. Just tonally, it's very similar. Visually, it's very similar. And you have um, a lot of the same preoccupations with the kids rushing around on bikes, mm-hmm. the kids struggling to get adults to believe them, the kids kind of forming this like little club of uh, kids that are trying to investigate something that's going on that everybody else doesn't know how to investigate. You've kind of got the kid who's the black outsider. You've kind of got the kid who's the nominal leader and heart of the group who's a little separated from everybody. Like the visual dynamic of what those kids look like is really similar and the fact that Finn Wolfhard is is in both of them really <laughs> doesn't know. help there. It playing basically the same character too. Oh that's not, I don't think that that's true. I think the, I think the, they might not have gone far enough into the, the whole like Richie and his voices and okay. Richie being obnoxious thing, but they pick up enough of the flavor of that, I think. Okay. You know what we haven't talked about and 
probably should, given it's kind of a big part of the movie, is Pennywise the Clown, as played by Bill Skarsgård, uh, son of Stellan Skarsgård, which I think I'm the last person to, to find out. I think it's scary. I think he's scarier in the beginning than he is at the end. And, and I think the the finale, he's not nearly as scary as he needs to be. But that first scene, that's really something. But, of course, in the finale, they're not they're not scared of him anymore. That's true. That's kind of the that point, the I guess. point. I think uh, one of the things that, that differentiates between him being really scary and him being less scary is towards the end of the film, he's increasingly becoming a digital effect. And a lot of mm. what's being done with those digital effects is to make him, you know, move like Samara from the ring or, uh, you know, unpack himself in unsettling, creepy ways. But I find him creepy creepier when he's just Stellan Skarsgård in makeup, looking up from uh, from under his brow in that eerie way when he's, With those when goofy he's perfectly teeth. lit. Those goofy teeth. That's, yeah, that's just yeah. those funny teeth. Promising cotton candy and popcorn and the whole the whole circus is down here. And, and we waiting wanna... every line with with menace. Just mm-hmm. the, like everything that he says sounds good and is full of malice. Is it too much to pull back and ask why are clowns scary and to, and then talk about why this particular clown is scary why is this particular clown scary i mean no, no, no. why are clowns scary though tasha i don't i've never found clowns scary i don't really get it but in general or like you know ever like you don't like you were just bored by the presence of pennywise in this one or just no no no, no. i i don't find i don't find the concept of clowns scary i like I, I never went through a period in childhood where i was unnerved by clowns i think that clowns has a have a reputation of being eerie because you know they're people but they put on makeup and and act in unsettling and unpredictable goofy ways mm-hmm. and they do magic which to a little kid can be threatening because it breaks the rules it breaks the laws of physics as you understand them i think all of these things unnerve people about clowns i never found clowns creepy now there's a a room full of clowns in this movie that's really pretty creepy that's a good scene, yeah <laughs> That's a good scene. I and I, I kind of used in you the word in your introduction, mirthless. I think I think a little more mirth would have uh, helped a little bit. There's a there's a bit where uh, where the where the boys are presented with three different doors to go through <laughs> from scary, really scary, and and uh, not, not scary, not scary at, all, at all. I believe there's something like that, and they go through not scary at all. And of course, uh, yeah, it is horrifying. But I, I kind of missed that little bit of playfulness. Probably would have helped bring this character to life. But I don't know. Really, aren't clowns a little obvious at this point, gang? Yeah, that's just. It. I I think <laughs> I tweeted something to this effect. But I, I feel like we should have it have it sequel. And just agree as a culture that we're over scary clowns. Clowns can just be funny, you know, jolly, strange, but not scary anymore. We've we've done scary clowns. Oh, I mean, I, and I, if I, we if we ever need more scary clowns, we just rewatch Poltergeist, which has the scariest clown of all time. Yes. Yes, it does. Part of me just wants this movie to succeed because I want to see what part two looks like. I want to see how all of these little bits of dynamics, because in the book, the it's really important to the story that as soon as it's all over, the kids forget everything and it doesn't really come back to them until they're adults. Mm. So the 50s segment and the 80s segment are like interleaved. So they're remembering parts of the 50s thing as it becomes irrelevant in the 80s. I'm really curious when it's just two completely separate, separate narratives that take place decades apart, like, is it going to have any, any of that impact? Are people going to remember all of these specific things? I guess we'll have to wait uh, and find out. So we'll, be right back after the break to talk about the connection between Stand By Me and It. Guys! Don't tell me that. Yeah. George, you were galoshes. 
Whose sneaker is it? It's Betty Ripson's. What if she's still here? Eddie, come on! My mom will have an aneurysm, okay? If she finds out that we're playing down here, I'm serious! Bill? If, if I was Betty Ripson, I would want us to find me. Georgie, too. What if I don't want to find them? I mean, no offense, Bill, but I don't want to end up like... I don't want to go missing either. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. You know, a great starting point would be uh, Stephen King, how, how each of them handles Stephen King, I think that Stand By Me probably gets beneath the surface of the kids a little bit better than uh, this one. What do you, what do you, what do you think? <laughs> there are three fewer kids <laughs> uh, that to deal with. Yeah, that helps. And, yeah. No, cl- and no evil clown uh, manifesting uh, terrifying visions. Oh, you didn't get the evil clown edit of Stand By Me? No, I got, oh. the, I got the boring Rob Reiner editor. God, yeah, you need, the, you need to see me. the other director's cut. Okay. I think a big part of that is that Stand By Me is a road trip movie. It's, it's a leisure movie. They don't have the preoccupation in it the kids have one thing to talk about. There's the one thing that pulls them together. It's the one thing they have in common. And so it's what they keep returning to. In Stand By Me, they've got a long, lazy summer's day to talk about everything that's on their minds. And they're in a story that's full of incident. And all of those incidents are different. And they're different in ways that bring out those characters and bring out their interactions and bring out their personalities in a lot of ways. Whereas in it, it's just, it's clown, clown, clown all the time. To be fair, if your town is being menaced by a killer clown, there's really not a, a lot of else you are going to want to talk about. Well, but I mean, they talk about, I mean, through the clown, the clown represents a lot of the um, terror and abuse and neglect and other terrible feelings that are present in the town of Derry. So in that sense, they're, they're talking about other things. And then, of course, you know, there's a love triangle with uh, Beverly, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that's not clown. There's nothing clowny about that. Mm, that's not true. clowning around. Which, oh my God. <laughs> that, that could have come across so poorly and so awkwardly. And I, like, the kids are all great, but uh, Jeremy Ray Taylor, I especially have to give a shout out to him for just how well he pulls across that, like, kid infatuation like he comes across as significantly younger than the rest of the group but his obsessions are so key to it and as a result like he he just he comes across as a really surprisingly nuanced actor i thought i really enjoyed him yeah I th- yeah i thought that was the real standout performance of all the boys in it he's kind of the tiny river phoenix like he's not in the river phoenix role like mm, that's no. Jaden lee no he's, he's in the jerry o'connell role and he way outdoes jerry o'connell yeah but he's given more to do that is true but no, nobody else in it is getting given that much more to do than any of the kids <laughs> stand by me they just don't have the time and i think that's a key element to think about when comparing these two movies is really when you when you don't have that clown you can really get into a lot of stuff so what you're saying is it would be better if it did not have a killer clown (laughs) and it was just these seven kids like i don't know maybe they could go on some kind of trip there are a lot of dead kids in dairy maybe they could look for a body Uh, by the way i think that the i don't remember the detail from the book 
of Bill being obsessed with finding his brother's body, but that I found really evocative. Mm -hmm. Like they don't hit it super hard, uh, but it's just kind of underlying that. And it's, it's a weird sort of connection between the two is this quest that he's on to find a corpse. It just seems in a way more convincing than anybody else's motivation. And yet it's, it's terrifying. It's a terrible thing. Those quests are different though. They're the same in the sense they're both searching for, a body, but the compulsion to do so is very different oh, sure. between the two movies. And, and really, what in finding it is stand by me as part of a rite of passage into adulthood in a way that it really isn't in it. I oh, you you had me, and then you lost. Oh, okay, me. so it. You no, think, when you he feel like it, when he confronts what he confronts at the end, that is most we definitely. We talk about what he confronts. He confronts his brother and then shoots him in the head. <laughs> he. <laughs> He confronts. I love it. I love. I just love being able to spoil things on this podcast because it is a spoiler uh, zone. Spoiler alert! I guess, guys. Well, spoilers alert! Bolt gun to the head. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> when you're down here. You'll spoil too. Fine. He finally encounters his little brother, and mm-hmm. and it's actually it, and he shoots it in the head, and it it is a rite of passage. It's the rite of passage of him giving up this fantasy of finding his brother alive and confronting the fact that that what he's facing is not his brother. He's literally facing his fear and, and destroying it. It's definitely a rite of passage, and I think it's very much a rite of passage story as well. And in the same way that Stand by Me okay. is, it's like these kids on the cusp of adolescence. Like, you know, putting away childish things. We we don't get the all kid orgy that we get in the novel, which is fine. But edging into adulthood is very much a part of this story. That well. would that would have definitely got him there. To yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't know if we have room to get into that odd turn in the Stephen King novel, or if we really want to. But it's probably a fine omission. I think what we can say is that Stephen King struggles with endings. Like, he famously struggles with endings. And in his novels, not his short stories. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, his short stories, I mean, sometimes they come to a, a kind of, and that was a thing that happened. But very often, the the ending is the point of the story. Um, but yeah, in his novels, he often, he just, he's so good with process and, and internality. And then he gets to, and something has to happen to wrap up the story, and he struggles. I think with it, he he struggles to figure out what these kids should do and he tries to do something metaphorical and evocative that's just too weird on a literal level um, <laughs> but I mean the whole book is full of big weird metaphysical symbology that they also throw out there's all of this stuff involving uh, you know the great cosmology of the turtle who created the universe who they go talk to about the ritual of chud where you bite your enemy's tongue and then insult it until it dies I mean there's a lot of stuff they leave out of the book but but I, I think, though, that omission ends up causing the film at least one problem, which is that I kept thinking, why don't these kids have a freaking plan? Like, they just, mm-hmm. all they do is they, they just, they're, they're, the plan is just to get together and confront this horrible force of unfathomable strength and evil, and, like, they've got nothing. And they're hopefully, hopefully figure out its weakness while they're fighting it, which is more or less what happens. And, and uh, yeah, I think the, the climax is not the strongest part of this film. I think that part of the problem with that is that where the kids, the kids in it keep making choices that are horror movie choices where you're like, why would anybody in the world do that? Mm -hmm. Having established over and over that the clown gets you when you're alone, nonetheless, characters keep seeing a like a long corridor lined with doors (laughs) and threats and they walk along it to the end and then like poke the scariest thing they can find like shuddering the entire time oh my gosh this is going to be so scary 
I'm a poke it. And it's, <laughs> they just, they, there is no establishing of like what impulse would drive that. Like what, is there a morbid impulse? Is there a fear impulse? In Stand By Me, there is that morbid impulse to see a body and yeah. it's so believable. It's so natural for these like what 11 year old kids to be like, oh my gosh, you want to see something? Mm-hmm. Like you understand them at every step of the way and you find yourself in their shoes. Yeah. And that, that doesn't exactly happen in it. So one thing that was appealing about Stand By Me in 1986 was we got to visit a far-off time known as the late <laughs> 1950s, and now we are old. This is and, rough, Keith. This, yeah, is, this is tough for me, man. And now we're seeing the year 1989 treated with a similar respect and, and nostalgia and, and, and warm glow, and it's pretty odd. It's pretty odd. I, I think this film doesn't lay it on too thick. I think it chooses a few signifiers pretty well. But there's still that sense that this has to is, is a, a far distant place uh, that we can uh, hope to return you to or, or, or for a lot of viewers, introduce you to for the first time. All right. So how, how do you think about this handle? Both the films handled the, the period, but specifically, I'm really interested in how the 1980s looks and in, in when it's treated with the sort of nostalgic veneer. Hey, you remember the halcyon days of uh, the late 1980s when Nightmare on Elm Street 5 was in theaters? <laughs> I, I kind of love that there's a movie marquee in the movie that just keeps flashing new titles from what is it 1989 well it was just two and actually it was it was no 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 because there was a different marquee that was uh batman and lethal, lethal weapon, weapon. Too, and yeah. then it changed over later in the summer to nightmare on street five which mm-hmm. i think is actually accurate and also a you know this is a, this is a new line film but it also felt like kind of a necessary nod and tip of the cap because there's a lot of nightmare on elm street in, there in this sure film. yeah i don't know it was strange gang 1989 i was you know 17 working in a movie theater uh, that was playing, play, that played, too. That played listening the, to that new kids playing, on the block all the time. Too. I, I, no, though I did, I did encounter uh, them at a uh, mall. New kids on the block. <laughs> wait, and, and we saw, wait. Let's just I, yeah, let's and, pause and we, to hear this. Story. Yeah, we, no, this is uh, this is this is totally relevant. This would have been, you know, this wasn't this wouldn't have been 1989. This was like 91, I think, because I remember the movie that I saw. They saw as well, which is the film Mo Better Blues by uh, Spike Lee. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I assume that when you said you ran into New Kids on the Block, they were performing in a mall. No, no, no. no they were, were actually surrounded by bodyguards and going to, going to the movies. Oh, crazy. Yeah, how about that? Like, yeah. no, like normal and then people. My, my, my long-haired friend tried to like walk up to them, and their bodyguards were not, not having that. Uh, Celebrities, they're just like us, except yeah. with bodyguards. Yeah. What was I saying about... Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, so I would have been 17 years old in 89, and... It's just, it's very strange to look back at that, like as a, as a nostalgia piece, because this becomes a, a nostalgia piece in an almost a particular mode of 80s nostalgia, which I'd expect for films that take place just a few years earlier than 1989, right? Was 1989 really the 80s? Well, I, the I've way? always thought that late 80s, early 90s is kind of this ill-defined period that we've yeah. never really quite figured out like what are going to be the things that stand out for it. I guess you get The Simpsons, you get, te- not in this movie, but just in general, you get Simpsons, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Vanilla Ice, MC Hammer. These are like the things that come out, but it's even those don't feel like that evocative of an era. You know, I think part of it is having a one-term president. You had a four four years <laughs> yeah. of George H. W. Bush, and then he's gone. And, and I think I have this whole theory where, where periods are a lot better defined when you have a two-term president. But that's I, or, I were born a really that scary, now. shitty president. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that too. You know, I made the new kids on the black joke. I do want to loop back to that because, I mean, to me, the this movie did not spend nearly as
as much time evoking the 80s as Stand By Me spent evoking the 50s. If nothing else in Stand By Me, you have kind of the wall-to-wall soundtrack. Some of it, sometimes the kids are singing the songs. Sometimes it's just in the background. Here, you have a couple of new kids on the block jokes. Yeah, but actually, I, I, I appreciate the soundtrack here. It seemed like sort of period appropriate and also kind of tribally appropriate where, where the bullies were listening to metal and, and uh, you know, Beverly, she had a replacement poster on the wall. The Cure played on the soundtrack when she was doing her thing. I, I did miss that. What, what what song? The song is Six Different Ways. It's it's a, a deeper cut. Not not on the greatest hits album, hmm. but definitely a fan favorite, I guess is what yeah, it's called. I know that one. Yeah. I liked what they did with New Kids on the Block, which just seemed very natural. Like, Beverly first encounters Ben. He's listening to it on his Walkman. He's embarrassed because it's popular. He tries to play it off. And then, like, you know, for the next hour or the movie or so, she teases him with it just in a very low-key way. And it's not underlined. It doesn't have to be a huge punchline. The movie doesn't have to return to it at the end. It's just a tiny little touch of people relate to each other through culture. People relate to each other by judging other people's tastes. People relate to each other by teasing each other about what they like. And because it's so underplayed, it doesn't become a big joke, although there is a one sound cue that the entire theater broke up at. You know, one, one key point about them, too, that at least one point I thought about was that it's also pre-sexual in a way, you know, because mm. he has a crush on Beverly, but I think it becomes non-threatening when he is associated with new kids on the block. Well, it's also non-threatening because she has an immense sexual threat in her life already, and anything notches down from that is you know comes across as as shame. Sure, but even Bill is a little bit less of a child than Ben is. Only barely, and in part because of trauma. And you know what caused a bunch of that trauma besides his brother's death? Are you talking about bullies, Tasha? I am talking about bullies. <laughs> yeah, I felt like the bullies in these in these two films were basically they could, they could be like the kids of the bullies and Stand by Me. <laughs> yeah. Definitely you know, cut from the same cloth. Just the the musical soundtrack and choice of cars. Of course, they were driving around in a Trans Am. That's changed, but otherwise, they're they're pretty much the same sort of uh, same type of bully. Yeah, these guys uh, seem younger, but they're much more threatening. They're much more frightening, and in part, it's because. You know, it's it's hinted early on and laid bare later that just being in dairy ramps the violence up for everybody in all yeah. sorts of ways. But I mean, these guys pretty much go straight from, uh, you know, spitting on our heroes to carving their initials in one. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't look away from that either. It's a really disturbing moment. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> it's with so many things about this movie. It's kind of aggressive and in your face. The dynamic's so similar too, though, between these because in both films uh, you have this lead bully and and his buddies are always shocked by how far he's willing to, to go but they're just too weak to pull him away and so they're, they're part of something that makes them super uncomfortable you know now that I think about it both movies also have uh, the bullies using their knives to carve words in flesh just one one's voluntarily yeah one's voluntarily and is kind of a, a tribal connection thing and the other is just to torture one of their victims Stephen King writes a lot of books <laughs> he writes a lot so certain things maybe get recycled and put into other material including right? in this one I, I think the role of adults plays is virtually identical in some ways they're, they're either absent or distracted or abusive you know that's something that these films share yeah i hadn't really thought about the degree to which chris river phoenix's character in stand by me has an abusive father who in a lot of ways 
is similar to Beverly's abusive father. It's just, you know, with her, there's more of a sense of, of creepy sexual ownership. But there's a lot of ownership feelings between the adults and the kids in both of these movies, just a lot of sense of like you are my property and we get that as well with eddie i think is the uh the hypochondriac kid who's like immense monstrous mother is kind of trying to contain him via munchausen by proxy essentially but is that a sense is this something that again is not developed well in the in the film that she is trying to protect her kid from whatever this thing is you get that at all i actually only see that connection now it makes a lot of sense but certainly that's what i got that's what i got towards i, I mean that I last this... moment like she she because why else would she do that well i thought it was actually i felt like that behavior predated the events of the film but perhaps just being in dairy it was she but was 27 years i mean so yeah. maybe she maybe these uh, adults grew up in the town and sure. were present for the last uh menacing it's underdeveloped yeah no but i think it's there and I, I think it's, I remember, do I remember being in the books? Is it, I, the I books can't too? remember in the books whether I I remember I felt like that was an interestingly subtle detail in the film. You know, she doesn't chase after him like down the the sidewalk yelling, "You have to come back! I'm just trying to protect you so the monster doesn't get you." But it is sort of subtly there. See, so I don't subtle, remember I don't whether know. it's there I think the there's a lot of things that are, you could say are subtle, or you could just say the film just doesn't right. <laughs> and that was the thing with with about race as well, just like tiptoe to the line, suggest something, I'm using air quotes, and then don't follow through on it. And there's a lot of that in the film. And it's just maybe it's a result of taking this immense book and mining what you want out of it and leaving the rest behind. But I think it mines some of the wrong things and leaves too much behind. And it just has made it become a stray thought, but I don't remember it's in the book either, but that kid who's scared of the sort of pseudo Modigliani uh, painter, that's a really lame thing to be scared of. (laughs) <laughs> it's a really non-specific thing to be scared of, it, and it's weird because everybody else, like Eddie, has been raised as a hypochondriac, so he's afraid of disease. So his monster is a leper who is threatening him with disease. Bill's monster is his little brother because this is the great trauma of his life. Uh, Beverly's monster is in part blood because she's just getting her period, and her father is more and more sexually threatening as she matures, and on and on and on. Where is the connection? Like the only thing we really know about Stan is that he's Jewish and his bar mitzvah is coming up and he's having trouble with his Torah reading. And his dad's a rabbi, so there's extra pressure. And he's under pressure from his rabbi dad. <laughs> what that has to do with a Mondigliani painting is I don't understand. I don't see any resonance there. So the adults are useless, but but kids are actually helpful to each other. That's something we see in both films. Yeah, and it kind of fascinates me. I, I picked up it and was like flipping through it looking for some specific thing regarding something that I was editing and fact-checking recently. And I ran across this scene where Bill gets really upset about something and, and he's weeping. I'm pretty sure he's weeping about how he didn't mean to send his little brother to his death. And Richie is profoundly uncomfortable and has no idea what to do and tries to comfort him in just the most like offhanded, uh, they're there kind of way possible and is like frantically looking around to see if anyone sees in both of these movies, you have kids breaking down weeping and just getting like the the most warm and sympathetic and unashamed physical comfort possible from everybody else in the group. It's it's almost like a, a hurt comfort fan fiction thing. There's like these <laughs> big performative, like weepy hard moments. And then all of the kids like physically come together to, to comfort each other. And I just I'm not sure what to do with it. It seems almost outside of how kids relate. 
but it just seems really like warm and well performed in both cases. I'm going to defend it because I think that um, I, I don't mean to say it. No, no. Defense. In terms of performance, I just think that you know, when you're talking about kids who are outcasts, who are bullied, you know, those types of kids when they do form a little a clique like that, that that intensifies the bond. I think, and you know, the, the necessity of them being together as a defense against the world, and so a closer friendship develops in a deeper friendship. I don't think it necessarily gets it right all the way, but I like that both Stand By Me and It and their respective source material do try to reckon with the bonds of friendship between kids, which is different than the bonds of friendship between adults and kind of a world unto itself. Yeah, well, especially because both of these movies swing back and forth so hard between that emotional warmth that adults don't understand you, but we do, and we will like comfort you and protect you because you're one of our own, and the your mom jokes and the abuse and the the foul language, which like in both cases, a lot of their bonding and their friendship is around saying horrible things to and about each other. It's just sort of a natural part of their relationships. That said, uh, one thing we do get in terms of you know comfort and support in the It adaptation is the girl gets kidnapped and the boys have to go rescue her. And, and that's an addition from the novel, isn't it? As far that- as I can tell, it's it's completely invented. It's just we had to figure out how to get them down there. Let's have the girl be kidnapped. I mean, she does get a couple of moments of strong action and she does get to rescue the boys, but it is... Yeah, I thought, well, this must be a case of them being faithful to the source material, maybe to a fault. And then it seems to be something they brought in later. But, but there's an interesting connection between Stand By Me and the in the train tracks that he ties her to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, when he twists his mustache? Yeah, oh, yeah. Exactly. When he like grows that digital mustache just for that one scene. And, uh, the, and the violin, the uh, screaming violin plays in the mm-hmm. background. Uh, the guy can't pay the rent, but he must pay the rent. <laughs> uh, lazy, lazy storytelling, man. There's yeah. so much story here that went untold, and so they had to trash it in order to pull a, the world's weakest trope out of nowhere. Yeah. yeah. Come on, it's, Andy it's Machete, a, it's you're a, better a, than this. A, I think overall, it's it's just too conservative and conventional an approach. So, I don't want to end on a down note. Okay, I, 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 I mostly enjoyed this film. Okay. I was just a little disappointed it didn't do a little bit better, but it moves along. I think people will be entertained by sure. it. I, I think... Maybe send some people to the book, which is an even better treatment of the material. It does feel like, in some ways, kind of a once-over lightly, but I liked it. I enjoyed the cast. I enjoyed the kids. I I enjoyed a lot of the scares. I think a lot of the visuals are really, really creepy. And I don't, I don't know if people will be pulling it out years later like we do with Stand By Me, but I do think this cast will be remembered. On that note, I think we can probably wrap up our discussion. Stand By Me is widely available on DVD and Blu-ray and available for digital rental on numerous platforms. It is in theaters now and likely will be for a while as people can't get enough scary clowns. We'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment, your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Tasha, what in the film world has been good for you lately? You know, we're recording this so quickly on the heels of our last recording in order to get something in the can before TIFF. I have not watched a lot of movies. This being a Stephen King-themed show, I really wanted to recommend some film by Stephen King. There was some film adapting Stephen King, and I have just been like looking through them, scouring through them for something that we have not already mentioned and that isn't 
terrible. Uh, about the closest I can come, I think, is probably Mary Lambert's 1989 adaptation of Pet Cemetery, which has some really awful aspects to it. Uh, Denise Crosby, in particular, just gives an awful performance. But there is some deeply, deeply frightening stuff in that film that I cannot in any way hint around without uh, spoiling some of the better moments of the film. I think that the book uh, I would just unreservedly recommend for people who like horror. I think it is one of his most frightening books. And uh, Stephen King has an approach to horror that varies really widely from guts and gore to like slow burning suspense to high fantasy. This is kind of the slow burning suspense and dread. It's a really tremendous book. So maybe read the book and then like watch the movie <laughs> for the, the few parts of it that aren't terrible. That aside, it's uh, a, a stunning recommendation. I, I am <laughs> I, telling I you that film being not good, but also incredibly scary. So there, well, it's the, the, the good parts are the scary parts. There's yeah. a lot of fat on that movie. Mm-hmm. Essentially. There's a lot of stuff, but that, you do get Fred Gwynn in over, Overalls, which is which is a plus, right? Yeah, you, you also get a really fake evil cat that is pretty creepy. Mm. I just want to throw out a recommendation for an article over at Vulture. We talked a bit about John Denver in Logan Lucky, the use of that song. And one of the things that occurred to me was we're seeing a lot of John Denver music. Like there's a John Denver song in Oakja. There's a John Denver song in Logan Lucky. There's a John Denver song in Alien Covenant. Uh, it just seems like this is the year for John Denver. And I had that thought. And then I saw article in Vulture called Why is John Denver's Music in So Many Movies This Year uh, by a writer named Karen Hahn. She uh, digs into the rights situation with his work. Uh, She digs into the process of the family approving use of his music. She digs into uh, how specific, why specific directors chose to use his music. And it's really informative. It's a, a good, solid piece of journalism with a lot of interesting facts in it. And it pulls together like movies that I had already forgotten from this year that have John Denver's uh, music in them. So it's just a, it's one of those things where you have sort of a casual question and then somebody puts a lot of work into answering it for you. Uh, why is John Denver's music in so many movies this year over at Vulture? Keith, what, what about you? What do you have? This is going to sound like a plug, but at uprocks.com, available on fine web browsers near you. <laughs> yeah. uh, we just wound down a week dedicated to Nicolas Cage and uh, ran a lot of pieces, uh, essays, some lighter pieces on Nicolas Cage. So I wanted to do the full appreciation of his career. And um, a writer named Matt Prigg wrote a piece on a film I was very much aware of, but I'd never seen before. <gasps> Called Vampire's Kiss. Oh, how can you not? I've never seen it before. It was it was on A B C D. Yeah, and it is it is um, even taking Nicolas Cage's sort of like career craziest performance and and uh, out of it, it's a really odd film. If they were ranking variations on the American Psycho theme, I I go American Psycho the film this film and then American Psycho the novel but basically Cage plays a a literary agent who lives the high life in 80s New York um, who may have been bitten by a vampire or may just be losing his mind Mm -hmm. and the film kind of leaves it an open question and it kind of lets reality and fantasy blur and it's all set in against this very well realized depiction of of New York in the in the late nineteen eighties. It's directed by Robert Bierman, who didn't really do I mean worked worked steadily and but also didn't you know, this is definitely his most notable film. It's written by Joseph Minion, who also wrote After Hours. Some of it he stole, um, but uh, but he did write the screenplay, um, and and it's it's kind of a variation on the after hours theme too, where, where there's this whole other city that you don't see during the day, and that city kind of consumes Nicolas Cage's character, and 
wow, it, it is really a full bore performance. It, it really, just watching the YouTube clips is, is not enough. Uh, it's definitely a film that's worth seeking out. It's kind of hard to find right now. It is available on Blu-ray uh, through Screen Factory, and it's available for rent on Vudu. Um, something yeah so it's out there and i would definitely recommend it scott how about you oh well i mean i (laughs) i have to second that vampire's kiss recommendation i also wrote a new cult canon bit on that film so i'm a i'm a big advocate for for that film and that performance so i want to settle in for a second because i've got a couple of films i wanted to recommend you know i've ranted before on this podcast about my misgivings over netflix which has been acquiring and bankrolling some really interesting films only to tuck them away in some dark corner of the service uh earlier this year we had recommended making blair's i don't feel at home in, in this world anymore which straight up won sundance but was shuffled to netflix just a few weeks later and on the day it debuted i had a search to find it uh and i should think that my algorithm <laughs> would be responsive to a genre film that's right up my alley in any case i have two more straight to netflix titles to recommend the first is called divines it's a french qatari film by director huda benyamina that won the camera door at Cannes, uh the prize that's given to best debut feature and it's quite an and it's quite an energetic and auspicious debut about a rebellious teenage girl and her muslim friend getting into trouble in a poor neighborhood in the outskirts of paris the girls commit a lot of petty crime until they start pushing drugs for a local gang, which gets them into another kind of trouble altogether. Divines feels at times like a Spike Lee film. It also feels like a contemporary take on the 400 Blows, you know, a sympathetic portrait of kids living on the margins. And it's got a ferocious lead performance by Ulea Amamra, who also happens to be the director's sister. So Divines, keep that in mind. It's fantastic. The second Netflix film I wanted to recommend is much lighter. It's called Tramps, and it's the second film by Adam Leon, who made the delightful indie crowd-pleaser Give Me the Loot a few years ago. Uh, Give Me the Loot, like, like Divines, was about petty criminality, except its tone was much less consequential. Its two heroes, graffiti taggers from Queens, were on an impossible quest to tag the Mets' home run apple. Tramps continues in the same vein, striking up a love story between teenagers who have, each have a role in delivering a suitcase, but have to go on an adventure together when the suitcase goes missing. It's Leon's idea of a romantic comedy, and though the two crooks are in danger and are in pursuit by uh, you know gangsters, Tramps isn't trying to be a streetwise thriller. Instead, it's got really nice chemistry between the leads, and like Gimme the Loot, it has an impressive attention to the neighborhoods it tries to explore. So, Divine's... And Tramps, two films that went straight to the service without uh, coming into uh, indie theaters, and uh, I think worth checking yeah. out. I wasn't even aware that Give Me the Loot guy made another movie, so yeah, that's, I that's exciting. Right, I, lo- I love that Netflix, one. Netflix was behind it, and uh, well, you know, here, here we go. Behind it. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's fine. That they're, it's great that they're making these movies. I just wish that people would be yeah. aware of them because I, I, they're I, significant. I hope they get it together. I, I really do feel like, you know, the first time I ever felt like, I need to go home and watch this new movie on Netflix was Okja, and, and, and that at least I felt like there was more of a promotional push behind it. Like, make me aware of these but movies. But if you, if, you if you go on, like, Wikipedia or something and look at all the Netflix original productions and documentaries, there's a long list of pretty good films. I yeah. mean, they're, they're really, they are producing films that maybe wouldn't get made otherwise. So, um, they uh, seem to 
it a little more push behind films that they made themselves as opposed to the many, many well, films. For 60, you know, if you're like Okja, it's like $60 million. So yeah. they're going to put a little bit, bit of push behind that. A little right? bit of oomph into it. But yeah, it, it surprises me. They snap up so many things and then they don't particularly have any organized push around them. I'm, there's a film coming up that I'm not going to name, but that it seems like that it's getting plugged as a Netflix original. And they didn't even bother to put it on their press site. It kind of snuck up on me. It's it's very strange to me. It's surprisingly hard sometimes to get in touch with a Netflix press person about anything they're doing. Yeah. So when you, when you see something that you really like on the on the site, like <laughs> you you can kind of feel like you're. It's up to you to like grab a megaphone and go shout it through yeah. the streets. This is inside baseball, but just on a level of someone who writes about film and assigns pieces about film, I often am not made aware of films by the people at Netflix. So I feel like, you know, they're doing a lot of really good work, but there's sort of this gap now between the ability to make a film and stream a film and the ability to let people know that the film is out there and, and kind of rally uh, people who ought to be their allies for good films to let people know. But Scott, you're doing yeah. good work for them, I guess. But, yeah, I guess yeah. so. You're doing good work yeah. where they're doing good work. Yeah. And that's it for this week's episode of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out on October 3rd and 5th. Scott, what do we have lined up? Well, by the time you listen to this podcast, Darren Aronofsky's mother may be on its way out of the multiplex due to middling box office and the rare F cinema score from audiences. But no film this year has been more talked about in critical circles, and certainly no Hollywood film has been as audacious as Aronofsky's horror comedy What's It, starring Jennifer Lawrence as a young woman tormented by the goings-on in an isolated estate. We originally considered Roman Polanski's Repulsion and Rosemary's Baby based on the ads, but we were surprised to find that the film has more in common with the surreal vision of Louis Buñuel, specifically his 1962 classic, The Exterminating Angel. Both Mother and The Exterminating Angel take place largely in a single location where the characters are trapped in a desperate situation and cannot leave. Get ready to duck, because the metaphors will be flying. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Stand By Me, It, Stephen King, and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Tasha? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You can find me writing about TV and film and serving as the TV and film editor over at TheVerge.com. And if you want more of me talking about Stephen King, I was just on Pop Culture Happy Hour talking about uh, the best place to start with Stephen King in the wake of the Dark Tower movie, which was not the best place to start with Stephen King. <laughs> Scott, how about you? Uh, uh, you can find me on the New York Times. You can find a piece that I wrote about uh, Stephen King adaptations on the Washington Post, among other things. Uh, you can find me at NPR, uh, Vulture. Uh, there's going to be a ton of stuff for me for Variety because I'm covering TIFF uh, for them. So lots of reviews to come from them. And um, in other uh, outlets, uh, you can also find me. I am the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog. I'm on Twitter, of course, at uh, Scott underscore Tobias. Keith? And you can find me serving as a film and TV editor at uprocks.com and on Twitter at kphips3000. You can follow our silent co-host, Genevieve, on Twitter at, at Genevieve Kosky and find her work at the vox.com culture section. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at, at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. 
Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Colin the Animal Griffith for his assistance producing the show, and thanks to Delmark Records for providing recording space at their home base, Riverside Studios. The next picture show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. We'll be right back.